Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Welcome to Bluebells Forever, and I get to interview Linda Gist, who we were in Hello Hollywood together I was in it the end of 1979. I think that's right, the end of 80. I should know that. But I've, I've interviewed a lot of people from Hello, Hollywood, Hello, because that was where I started because I knew people. But it's, it's interesting, even being there a year, that there's so much history before I even came in and friendships that had been formed and stories that I was hearing after the fact. And then I leave and, the, and then there's these friendships that were still happening. The show was still going on. So I feel like I kind of just got plucked in to that bit of the story, but there's, there's so many stories just from that one show. So if I do Bluebells Forever podcast and only interviewed Hello Hollywood people, I'd have like seven years of material right there because everybody's <laughs> story is unique and where you came from and how you got there. And one thing that really intrigued me, which I know will go there, are the friendships that happen because of those shows and also the, the stories that come out of being in the original show, like what it was like to come in with this brand new thing instead of, for me, getting placed into a show that's already existing. So I love those stories of parts that I never experienced or even got to know and like why those friendships were already so established uh, for some of us who came in later that you're kind of playing catch up. So if you want to just introduce yourself and tell me where you are now, and then we'll kind of just start with like what it was like growing up and was dance, you know, on your horizon or just something you did for fun. Sure. Hi, Sherry. It's just so lovely to talk to you and relive these memories. I've done a lot of things in my life, but I think Hello Hollywood, Hello was the the best. It was just mm. so enchanting and such a blessed company. So yes, I always danced. I think I came out of the womb dancing. Uh, when I was five, my mother let me stay up to the astounding hour of 9 p.m. to watch. I think it must have been the New York City Ballet doing the Nutcracker. And I said, I want to do that. And, but I just, you know, I danced around in my nightgown for my parents' dinner guests. I just danced around. <laughs> and when I was eight, my mother came home one day and said, would you like to take dance lessons? And I was just astounded. Who knew that such a fabulous thing as dance lessons existed? Yeah, sign me up. And my mom loved it too, because I was gone all day on Saturday. <laughs> we did tap, we did jazz, we did ballet. And I have to say, with all respect to my first dancing teacher, my technique was just terrible. I just, I just, it was just terrible, but I, I loved it and I kept going. And I made up my mind when I was in third grade and I was eight years old that I was going to go to Stevens College and major in dance. Now, what kind of nerdy child decides at eight years old? <laughs> but I did. And I did. I graduated with a BFA in dance from Stevens College in 1972. And I had the most fabulous ballet teacher, John Marshall, from the Royal Ballet. Also, he also was Leslie Bandy's teacher at, at one point, and he was so wonderful. So here he has this tall, gangly-looking, poorly trained person who loves ballet, and he just started working on me and all the rest of us to get us in better shape. So when I graduated, I thought, well, now what? My whole goal in my life has been to graduate from college, and I don't know what comes next. And Mr. Marshall said, if you would just go to New York or just go to London for one year and go to ballet school and work a little more on your technique, I think you could get a job. 
And so I convinced my parents to send me to London for one year. Two and a half years later, after I worked my way all the way up through my advanced RAD exam and my ISTD exams, I felt like I was ready. So you, you may have heard someone mention Peter Baker before. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of auditions for Miss Bluebell. He organized a tour in Germany for me and two other girls, an American girl and an English girl, to go to opera ballets in Germany to audition. So we, would, um, we went on the train and we would check into a hotel and then go to the theater and ask if we could do company classes and audition the next morning. Then we would go to a restaurant and about all we ate was goulash because that was the only thing we could read in German on the menu. (laughs) (laughs) And then we would uh, wash out our tights from the night before, hang them up to dry. And then in the morning we would go down to the breakfast room where they had these fabulous German breakfasts with eggs and cheese and sausage and rolls. And we'd eat a teeny bit because we were doing class and then stuff everything else we could in our handbag and go off to the theater and do company class. And then afterwards we'd, go hopefully up to the company manager and he or she would say, no, (laughs) go get our luggage and get on the train and then have a big lunch from everything we've taken from breakfast and do it again. And finally in Kaiserslautern, I got a yes. The other two girls didn't get a yes. I got a yes, but there were no contracts coming up. So I had to wait. So I went home. Um, I did some auditions in the United States And then I heard from a friend about auditioning for the Bicentennial Parade at Disneyland. And I went out to stay with my friend in 1975, and I did that Bicentennial Parade. That was my first professional job. I wore a great big costume with a great big head. I was a showboat dancer, and we danced Mm -hmm. to the Robert E. Lee. And it was a wonderful experience. I made lifelong friends. some of whom have become friends with my Hello Hollywood friends because it was a really tight group of people. So I did that for a year and a half. And then I got a telegram because we didn't have any other way to communicate back then other Mm. than long distance phone calls. And those were way too expensive. I got a telegram from a friend from ballet school. She was going off to Egypt to work in a ballet in in a nightclub. And one girl was injured and they would take me on her recommendation if I wanted to go. And I was off like a shot to London in 24 hours to rehearse. And we worked in a dive in Alexandria. Oh, it was so bad. Um, But I was so proud. I was so happy. We wore these big pants. We didn't have G strings. We wore these handmade costumes. My makeup was horrendous. I I would have paid them for the experience to do this. (laughs) So, So my friend Sally and I did this we were there for four months and then we, we took her little Volkswagen bug, which was at her home in London and Dollis Hill. We crossed the channel and we drove around Spain and went to various places where she had worked before. And we both auditioned for, and were hired for a theater show in Barcelona, not a nightclub show, not a production show, a theater show. So Miss Bluebell had the Scala and those beautiful girls were there doing all that Bluebell thing. And we were working in this, in this theater show. And I did that not for a very long time. I did it for a short period of time because Miss Bluebell was having auditions at the Scala for this new show in Reno. And two of the girls I worked with, I didn't even know about it. They said, come with us. We're going to go over to the Scala 
tomorrow afternoon and we're going to audition for Miss Bluebell. And we did. And we went over and we auditioned for Miss Bluebell. And um, on the stage at the Scala, there wasn't anybody there. The stage lights were on. And she was so lovely and so nice. And um, one girl was very balletic, but very short. She didn't make it. The other girl was tall and thin, and I thought really entrancing looking. I thought she was so lovely, but Miss Bluebell thought she needed a nose job, so she didn't make it. Mm. And then Miss Bluebell asked me to very discreetly step to the side and drop my leotard. She told me she needed to see my bust line because they were hiring for a new line of shorter girls called the pony line, and those girls would be topless. And that she would let me know. So I waited and waited and um, didn't hear. And then one afternoon, when I walked into the theater for the six o'clock matinee, the concierge told me, Senorita Linda, here's the mail for you. And it was this great big envelope from Miss Bluebell. So I, I knew it was a contract. It wasn't a rejection. Mm. And that's, that's how I was hired. And I, I am so honored to have been hired by Miss Bluebell herself and to have had a lovely relationship with her. She was very good to me. I went on tour for her. I did a television show for her. I was a company manager for her in a small touring show. And uh, she was very, very good to me. And I, I cherish knowing that I was hired by Miss Bluebell yeah. herself. That's how I became a Bluebell mm. girl. Did you know anything about her before you auditioned when you went, when they said there's this audition at the Scala, did you have, had you seen one of her shows or known her reputation? Oh, well, I, I knew about her because I had gone to ballet school in London and some of those girls who weren't good enough to get in the ballet company went off shamefully to Paris to work topless. Sometimes they were only 15 and we were sort of like, eh, you know, well, by yeah. the time I'd been around a little bit and worked a little bit, I, I really thought, Here's my philosophy in life. You have a goal to pursue, and my goal was to be a little swan. You know, that was my goal. And uh, a door opened, and I followed that door and went down that path, and that led me to being a Bluebell girl, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. So by the time I auditioned for Miss Bluebell, I was ready for that. I was ready for there, that. There was something you said, because I've heard other people say this too, because I did the huge audition in Vegas for Hello Hollywood, Hello, but it was like, there was choreography, but I, like the way you said, she just said, do a little ballet. So you just yeah. like, whatever. And so like, if people aren't so, choreographers, like, okay, let me, what do I show her? <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know, I didn't know what would happen. So there were three of us. So uh, one by one, we got up on stage and did a little ballet. So I'm sure I like the waltz. I did balance, balance, suit to new turn, pose, turn, pose, turn, <laughs> arabesque and finish in a little curtsy. And then after we did that, she said, do a little jazz. So step, touch, snap your fingers back, uh, step, ball change, step, kick, you know, a little, a little jazz. That was it. That was our audition. But did she ever eye, say, like, show me a pirouette, like, or a, like a specific thing to see that you weren't, no. that you had technique? There was, that wasn't in the audition. No, but I think she had the eye and she could yeah. tell. If you didn't do pirouettes, you probably didn't know how to do them, you know? Right. And, and okay. But I don't recall her asking us for anything particular interesting so interesting yeah. where did you grow up so i um my whole family is from pueblo colorado that's where i live now but uh through a relationship my father made um in world war ii my father was a doctor 
he and my mother moved to Effingham, Illinois, and he joined a medical clinic there. So my sister, my older sister was born in Pueblo, but I was born in Effingham. But every summer we came to Pueblo, Colorado. My grandparents lived on a ranch. We rode horses. My cousins were in town. And I thought Pueblo, Colorado was just a little slice of heaven. It was so nice. I used to get the neighborhood, the neighborhood kids to help me before we would, uh, go to Colorado in the summer to collect lightning bugs and we put them in a mason jar with grass in the bottom and poke some air holes in them because you don't have them in Colorado and I would give them to my cousins oh, and oh my they'd, they'd let them out at night and, and look at them flying around and then try and catch them and keep them for another night and they'd last three or four days well, that's so, so I have a question if you've been in Europe living in like these beautiful places so you get hired to go back to America did that feel like I'm coming home or like, oh, I'm leaving? Oh, I wanted this kind to of, so much. You were ready? No, no okay. I was ready. I was ready. Okay. I was ready. So my parents' goal was to get back to Colorado, and they did eventually move back to Colorado. So I did graduate from high school here in Pueblo, Colorado. And then I left to go to college, and then I left to go to London, and then I left to go to Disneyland, and I was gone for 25 years. Although I came back, of course, all the time to, to see my family. But I didn't live here for 25 years. And then um, after 25 years, I dragged my husband kicking and screaming all the way back from Monte Carlo <laughs> to Pueblo, Colorado. And here we That's so here interesting because you got now. to have that exotic life of traveling well, I had this to these really unique. That... I had this really unique experience. I graduated from high school in 1969. And in the 60s, people did not travel like they do nowadays. And going to Europe was a big deal. Yeah. No, the only people in my family who had ever been to Europe were the soldiers, my uncles, who had been there during World War II. And I came home from high school in my junior year and my uh, sophomore year, my sophomore year. And my parents said, would you like to go to Europe on tour this summer? And I was like, what are you talking about? And through a friend of my grandmother's who was a teacher, there was an organization that was providing well-chaperoned youth tours to Europe. Almost everybody was college-aged. My friend from Pueblo went with me. We were 16, and we were the two of the youngest on the tour. And we went through seven countries. It's like, if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium. And I absolutely mm -hmm. loved it. So interestingly, I didn't remember saying this, but my friend Karen and I went together. Years later, her daughter Ashley, when she was 15, went to France with her uh, high school French class on a tour, because by that time it was commonplace. And she was able to come and stay with us for a day and spend a day with us. And she told me, my mother told me that when you were in Paris, you said, I will come back here and live here one day. And I did. Wow. So, so what was that like to go? Okay, now I'm going back to America. Okay. I mean, I don't know how much they prepped you for how uh, magnificent the show was going to be. I mean, well, you probably had, didn't have to be sold on it, but like you're now going back yeah. to open the, a brand new show with Don Arden. Like, were you? Well, I've uh, been to, I had a friend from Disneyland who was in Hallelujah Hollywood and I had gone to Las Vegas and stayed with her for a couple of days, Dolly Kelepez. And uh, she, she was in Hallelujah Hollywood and I auditioned for Fluff and uh, she was very nice. And she said, you're very good, dear. You should work, but I don't have any contracts coming up right now. The story of my life. I don't have any contracts coming up. Now you have to wait. And I would call Dolly and say, yes, is it time or that? Because I didn't know how it worked, you know? Yeah. And then I ended up, then I ended up going off to Egypt to work. And that, that was the end of that pursuit. So I had seen that show and I was, of course, just completely wowed and knocked off my feet by the grandeur and the beauty and how stunning it was and how big, big, big it was. 
And so I sort of knew, but I remember my, so I left the show in Barcelona in November so that I could come home and have Christmas and Thanksgiving with my family. My mother and I flew out to Reno. She helped me find an apartment and I drove out with my sister and brother-in-law and they flew back and we had a little U-Haul mm. with a little bit of cast off furniture from everybody to furnish my apartment. That's sweet. It was lovely. So I, I, um, I made friends fast cause I had a car. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I came into my first day of rehearsals. We, we sometimes had to wear hard hats because they were still under construction. And we walked through what was the lobby in the casino into what would have been the entrance to the showroom door. And I walked in behind Linda Farrell and Debbie DeCudro, and I was just blown away. These girls were so gorgeous. They were so beautiful. They were so elegant and so exotic looking. And I just didn't quite know what I was in for. And then it was like your big audition. Although we already all had contracts, everybody had to get up on stage and do class together, including the singers, principal singers, of course, the principal dancers and the dancers. Everybody had to be up there on stage together. And Liz Larkin told you her story. Well, my story was similar. I was there and I worked, but not in a big show. I had my pink ballet tights on. I had my leotard pulled down. I had my little uh, character, black. Mary Jane character shoes with a one inch Cuban heel. Right. <laughs> we hadn't been doing this very long. Might've been two weeks. And Saji pulled me aside when we were having a break. And he said, girlfriend, get yourself some fishnet tights and a pair of rehearsal shoes. And he was, and roll that leotard up. He's rolling my leotard up as we speak. <laughs> He's rolling my leotard up. He said, before that man eats you up and spits you out. Oh so, my gosh. So we, we rehearsed. From six in the evening till two in the morning. And at 10 o'clock the next morning, I was up dressed and ready to go. I hit that Capizio store. <laughs> I bought two pair of fishnet tights and a pair of rehearsal shoes. And I came in and I rolled my leotard up because I was scared of that man. And I didn't want him to <laughs> chew me up and spit yeah. me out. And he was mean. He was mean yeah. to a lot of people. Not, if you didn't get the, we feel lucky that you weren't the one that's getting chewed out. Right. I have a right. question. And, like, did they, they didn't know who was, so I wouldn't, I want you to talk about the groups because I think I did, okay. I've never heard that, but did you, they didn't know who was going where, right? So the classes, was that how they were deciding or did they, how they were going to decide, like you're going to do top hat or this dancer looks better in this style. Did you know well, that was happening or how that happened of who got, I groups? think their idea was to get a feel. Uh, I don't really know, but I think the idea was to get a feel. So there was a table kind of center middle of the showroom where Miss Bluebell sat, Don Arden sat when he was around, Bill DeAngelis sat there. Um, and they, they worked out things. And the first, if I'm, memory serves me well. The first number we learned was top hat. Everybody learned top hat. And then I think they kind of decided about groups, but if you'll remember, I was hired to be a pony. And Please so, explain what that is because I didn't okay. realize that Hello Hollywood Hello was probably the only Don Arden show that had ponies and people that don't know that like what's thinking we're talking about real horses. So, <laughs> so um, uh, the bottom line limit, the l shortest you could be to be a bluebell girl was 173 centimeters, which was my height, five feet, eight and a quarter. And bluebell girls had always been that height or taller. And there had always been bluebell girls who were dressed and nudes who were topless. For this show, they decided to add an extra line of 12 working spaces of shorter girls, five, six to five, eight. And they called them ponies. 
So when Ms. Bluebell saw me, and I believe she put me up against the wall and measured me, I'm not sure she took my word for it that I was 173, um, they hired me to be a pony. So at one point they had uh, all the girls, all the topless girls on stage. They had the ponies lined up on, I believe, stage right, and the, blue, uh, the nudes on stage left. So the Nudes were always referred to as the tall nudes because they were the taller nude line. And they were looking at the girls. So there was this lovely English girl. She worked on our show and then she went to Las Vegas. Very thin, very young. Her name was Jane Anthony. And she was in the tall nude line and I was in the pony line and they were sizing up the girls and they switched us. They put Jane in the pony line and they put me in the tall nude line because our, our figures worked better with that group. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if anybody else was switched, but but that's that's the way that worked. So for the girls in the show, there were 12 working spots for ponies, 24 working spots for bluebells, 24 working spots for tall nudes. And then for the boys, there was a black boys line and that was six working spots. Gosh. I don't know how many boys there were. I don't know if there were 12. You'll have to ask a boy that you interview how many boy spots. I know there were at least 12 because with the black boys, that would have made 18. I, I don't think there were 18 boy spots. I think I could be wrong anyway. And then, then you had uh, singers and principal singers, principal dancers. And then you had the attractions like uh, Joni and Bob who yeah. were featured in, in the uh, San Francisco in the park and so it was a huge company so you can imagine all these dancers up on stage doing the warm-up but then they finally split us up into groups so the ponies went off into their group and the bluebells went off into their group and Don Arden came up on stage with this with the tall nudes and he pulled out Diana Hawcroft and Jane Ogle as the captains each captain had two lines of girls and then he started pulling out swings and girls so he first he pulls out Debbie Bayless to be the swing and he pulls out Andrea and Kate and Debbie Barnes and uh, Annette Post and uh, I don't remember all the girls and pulls them out into a group and then he pulls out and they were all pretty tall then he pulls out some slightly shorter girls all pretty much a unique height and puts them in a group then he does the same thing for a third group of girls pretty much the same height and puts them in a group and then there are the scragglers left. And I was one of those scragglers. And he said, you are group A, you are group B, you are group C. Those were the first three groups. And you girls will do the kick line in the finale. And you, he said to us, are the freaks in the circus. You're group oh. D. And it was so horrible, oh. you know. <laughs> Excuse me. It was so horrible. I went home and I cried in the shower. That man called me a freak. But you know what? We banded together. It was a lovely group of girls. And Dulcie was our swing. And we were, we were so lucky to have Dulcie. She was a legendary bluebell. And we even had t-shirts made that said group D and proud of it. So um, I told you this before when we were just chatting. It wasn't very long after the show opened before those girls who were in the tiller line, they would come back to our row and they would say, hey, you want to do the kick line tonight and I can do your freak costume and just parade around the stage in a figure of eight and not have to do the kick line. And we'd be like, ah, no, mm. no, we like oh my gosh, yeah, two team. shows a night. I remember that second show, that killer line was like, okay, I got to pull energy. 
Can you describe, because look, the freak costumes, I think, because my friend Robin, that you, we're mutual friends, her and I got right. hired together. We were put in different mm -hmm. groups, but she was, I think she was, she was the giraffe neck, which was the craziest costume. And Pete Menefee, yeah, that I think, was my original. The, yes, that was yours. Can you just Thanks, describe Pete. what the freak, for those who didn't see yeah. the show, because those so, costumes were crazy. In the circus, there were six uh, little round pedestals on wheels that were about mm, five feet around, five, five feet across. Um, and they, they each one had a billboard behind them with a picture of a sideshow girl. We were technically called the sideshow people, not the freaks, but we, once a freak, <laughs> always a freak. Right. And there were six of us. So there was the half man, half woman, and that costume was split down the center with one side of your bust showing and a mustache <laughs> on the lip on the right. other side and a big, big sombrero hat. There was that one. I was the original giraffe neck lady. And I had this huge, this must have been because I worked at Disneyland. I had this huge thing that fit over my neck and way up at the top of the neck was a little head that turned. It was attached to a pole onto a skull cap that I wore and it turned when I turned my head. And I had a shield in one hand and a spear in the other. And I had a macrame beaded skirt and it had beads on it. And when you walk, those beads whacked you in the knees and it hurt like the dickens. <laughs> and finally, Dottie took the beads off my skirt because... <laughs> <laughs> wounding me so half man half woman giraffe neck woman baby bernice and her pet pigs that was the fat girl costume it was a yeah. huge chubby costume and the pig was attached to the costume and your arm went through and you could make the mouth open and close and then there was the siamese twin the siamese twin i guess and the siamese twin had six arms three sets of arms a real set of arms and then three or four, you'll have to ask Miriam, she was the original, three or four more sets of arms, all these arms and the cutest gold shoes with the toes that curled up. Those were the original shoes. Then there was the snake lady. That was a beautiful costume yeah. and it oh, had a green that. skirt that flowed out behind it and um, Medusa snakes wrapped around and then your, your hands fit into the snakes and you could make the snakes move when you walked around. And then there was the pincushion lady. And that was a really cute costume. It was like the drum major costume, um, hot pink sparkly boots and a, and a big blonde wig. And then a bodice in sparkly pink with lots of sequins, but with swords that went in one side and came out the other, maybe six or eight swords. So she was the pincushion lady. And then the last costume was Dulcie's swing costume. And that was a beautiful costume too. It was a mermaid with a long tail and a beautiful, beautiful Lady Godiva wig that came all the way down past your waist. So Dulcie did not wear our costumes when we were swinging. She, she had her own costume. Oh, that's, oh, that's some of those costumes. I don't know if I'd want to put on after <laughs> someone's head has been in a giraffe neck every night. Yeah, that was my head. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to go back to the, the group thing, but also can you tell about the thing that was taken out of the show that, that you and Miriam did on the elephants? Sure. Because that's so, kind of that same scene of the finale. Yes, it is. So in the finale, and a lot of people never saw this, it was so fantastic. There was so much going on and so much to see. So in the finale, there was the calliope. And at the back of the calliope on either side was a gold mirrored elephant reared up on his hind legs with his front legs up and his trunk up over the top of his head. And those elephants were on either side of the rotund that had the lion in it. So that revolve 
we were on either side of that revolve. We were on the same level as the lion. And Miriam and I sat on those elephants. That was our finale spot. So they had a tractor seat covered in purple velvet that we sat <laughs> on and a seat belt to hold us in our place. And we had big hats with huge, uh, with long wires with big, heavy feathered balls in orange and white and pink in the back that hung out. And there was a an extension to the back of that and they were too heavy to hold your head up. So we had a rebar rod that came up from behind our seat and opened into a V and the back of our hat sat in that and our hat was strapped on. So to get on those elephants, the stagehands had to roll up a rolling staircase. We had to walk up there with our dresser and, and then she would give us our hat and put it on. The stagehands would put that rebar piece in so our hat would fit in there. And then we were, we were just stuck. We couldn't move. We couldn't get down. They had to come and get us down after the show. They had to undo that whole thing, take off our hat. We couldn't get into it or get out of it by ourselves. So our concern, of course, was what happens when the wagons don't open, but the elevator goes up. And Can you explain what wagons are for those who sure. don't know? So the stage was very, very big, and it had two rectangular, large, large rectangular sections of stage that were cut out that were part of the stage floor that fit smoothly on the deck level, on the deck. And those two large rectangles were called wagons, and they would drop down about, I'm going to say, five inches, and then roll to the side underneath the existing pieces of stage, still visible on stage right and stage left. And that left a giant square hole in the stage. And underneath that was an elevator. And that elevator had set pieces on it that came up in, in various parts of the show. Sometimes it came up with people on it, or sometimes it came up and they pushed pieces on it, like the space set was, yeah. was pushed, pushed on it. Um, and... So if the wagons had a, if something went wrong mechanically and the wagons didn't sink down and roll across so they didn't open, then the calliope couldn't come up. And that happened before where there was just was an empty stage and everybody was just saluting Nothing. hello Hollywood to empty air. And I, I don't know how aware the audience was. There was so much going on. Girls on the passerella, girls on the side staircases, boys in fabulous costumes, uh, chariots and horses. You know, it was, there was so much going on. So um, once vacations started and holidays swings were put in and then people would call in sick and people would be on vacation there would be vacant spots on the stage and so Miriam and I would get pulled out to do those we were the first two to get pulled to do somebody else's finale spot because honestly nobody saw us up there on those elephants anyway and then one night while we were doing somebody else's spot it happened the wagons didn't open sorry the yeah the wagons didn't open and the elevator came up and the trunks got smushed up there <laughs> so we ran which is where stuff. you would have been sitting. Which is where That's we would have been sitting. Which is where we would have been sitting. <gasps> you now, the stagehands oh, so stage just... were really so good. Once something like that happened, they put the stop on everything. But, you know, you have to know what's happening. You have to know the elevator's going up. You have to be uh, somewhere to know that it's not happening and push the button that stops that elevator that's supposed to go up. So there was some crunch time in there. So we ran, we ran back to to uh, Clinton Walker's office uh, 
Keaton Walker's office. And, and before we could even, you know, yell at him and say, we're never going up there again. He said, you're never going up there again. We're pulling that spot. And nobody ever did the elephants again. The elephants stayed. The elephants were there. But I believe they took the tractor seat off the heads and uh, they just decorated the stage. And they're still there. They, they were on the, or one of them at least was on the stage at our last reunion. So that was my, wow. that was my finale position. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember the pictures from the reunion too. And just thinking, yeah, if that had been squished, like you, that would have, there's no, and you were strapped in, there's no way you could have just shimmied off or slid off. No. You would have been, oh my gosh. No. That should be like a, a documentary of 107 ways to die in one of these shows because like <laughs> yeah. you say the things, politically correctness, like Don couldn't have got away with and also just like L&I things like, I'm just yeah. thinking like running to the, I forgot what it was called, the pastoral that went over the audience at the finale. The pastorella, like, yeah. Like how do we get up there? So I just remember like, well, there, the were revolves shoes on and... this, there were revolves on the side stage that were outside the curtain. So you had, the, you had the curtain and the apron that was a little bit outside. And then there were these two side stages that curled around that were round. And there was a circular staircase on them that went up. And that yeah. passerelle dropped down from the ceiling and hooked in with those staircases. And I think you had to run. I think you had to run. Never running? Up those stairs and all along. And then, and then there was one more. There was the drum majorette in a big yes. white costume. Do you remember that? That yes. was originally Debbie DeCoudreau's costume. And then it became in my, it, it came to group D and it became Dominique, the pincushion lady. It became her finale position. And so I had to swing that and do that. And I got stuck one time. It didn't go up. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in the costume over the audience the guys in the booth are laughing and waving, bye, we're going to lunch. And I'm stuck <laughs> in this costume. So I blew kisses and waved at the audience. And I don't know how long it was before they got me up, maybe 10 minutes. It seemed like an hour. And I finally came back to the dressing room and the girl said, where have you been? Oh. I've been stuck. <laughs> and your, over your, the friend, your friend, Robin Henderson, that became her spot. And I know she got stuck many times up there when that, when that little piece uh, didn't go back up into the ceiling. I think it only happened to me once, but I bet it happened three or four times to Robin. I'd say, where have you been stuck? <laughs> yes. Because I was almost center on that passerelle. So that's the way cause we faced different directions. I remember facing like when it was Robin, I remember you being up there because yeah. it's just bizarre. <laughs> like you learn the show and you're running up and down with your heels and your feathers. And I remember that thing shook. Well, yeah, we ran, but it's like, but it is like, I remember if, and the year it was I was like there, a suspension bridge. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was a story. <laughs> oh my gosh. So can you go back to, uh, at the, when you're all learning the show, the show was kind of divided mm -hmm. by ABCD ponies and all that, but also you said people kind of found their groupings just because yeah. of the shows they'd done before. And because that big right. a cast, you, you want to bond with people. You can't bond with 150 people. No, it was a very, very friendly cast and everybody got along together well, but people just naturally gravitated to somebody with a similar interest. So a lot of the Paris girls, those who had worked at the Lido and those who had worked at the Moulin Rouge, a lot of them in the beginning sat together before we were divided up into groups. They had that in common. And um, there were a lot of girls in the show and boys too, who had worked in Hong Kong. And uh, those girls and boys kind of grouped up together and set together. I think a lot of the Americans set together, I'm not sure. But I was in with the Spanish group, the girls who worked at the Scala um, in Barcelona. And, and that was my, my group of friends in the beginning. And then uh, several of us were all tall nudes together afterwards. So we just maintained that friendship. And those 
friendships are my friendships to this day. We were all really good friends. So Sherry, we got paid once a week and it was probably on Thursday. I remember we got paid on Thursday when the show was open. So I'm guessing it was during rehearsals and we were on rehearsal pay. We got like 150 bucks a week, half salary. And so, you know, none of us had very much money, but I had a car and there was a casino downtown. I don't remember which one, somebody will remember the name, but there was a casino downtown that had an all night buffet. Could have been three bucks to, for all you eat, all you could eat. And so we would, I would load up my friends in my cart, which wasn't even mine. It was my grandfather's old Dodge. And we would drive to downtown and you could cash your paycheck. And then they would give you a spin on a big wheel and you could win a coupon for a drink or a roll of nickels for the slot machines or a free ticket to go through the, the buffet. You could win things there and we would all win something. And then we would go in to the buffet, the all you could eat buffet. And it was filled with people from the show because everybody <laughs> had been rehearsing for eight hours. Everybody was hungry and everybody wanted a cheap meal and a good meal. So we did that a lot. We did that a lot. Because <laughs> I came into it, it was the cafeteria. I remember the smell of the cafeteria and like being so oh, yeah. broke. I moved there, but I remember like grilled cheese sandwich. It wasn't that great of food. And it was so opposite of the glamour. Yeah, let me tell you about the cafeteria. So okay. when we were rehearsing on stage, you've got all these different groups rehearsing. So even with the tall, with the tall nudes, you had one group, you had, everybody was rehearsing fans, or you had one group rehearsing Top Hat and another group rehearsing Air Stewardess. You had Bluebells rehearsing different, you had all this stuff going on, and they had to find a place for us to rehearse. So we learned fans in the cafeteria. It was an oh. empty room. It was an empty room, and it, it didn't, I think that, cooking counters were in, but there were not any okay. tables in there. And Larry Maldonado was the choreographer who choreographed that number, but we didn't have any fans in the beginning. So the stagehands made some fans and they, they cut plywood board in the shape of a half moon. And they got a hold of some old cast off pink and white fans. And they took the plumes off of those and they stapled, I'm going to say five, maximum six plumes to these pieces of cart of plywood so you had like a feather and then a big space and a feather and a big space <laughs> and there weren't enough to go around so when you went down there to the cafeteria to rehearse fans you had to grab the fans to learn how to use them well I didn't know how to use fans I'd never <laughs> done fans before and I was terrified of Larry Maldonado he was mean on a scale of Don Arden he was so mean oh <laughs> and so I always just stood at the back and did my arms and flicked my hands. And I never had my hands on a fan until we got our real fans. And they were so heavy. And, oh and, my gosh. and it was a, such a beautiful number, such a beautiful number. But we rehearsed down there. And I'm sure in the cafeteria and I'm sure that there were other groups rehearsing down there. And, and when we were down there rehearsing for fans, he taught us how to do a showgirl walk and talked to us about how to come downstairs, how to place your foot, how to cross your legs over a little bit with very rude comments about what you looked like if your legs were far apart and you weren't walking properly. Oh, no, I can so, imagine. <laughs> so, so that's, that's my cafeteria story. Yeah. I remember, I look at the pictures of how defined my muscles and my arms. I was also much thinner than I am now, but there was no way, because I felt like the best arms I ever had, I've done other shows with fans, working fans and how heavy those were. And I've actually done fan numbers with some of my dancers here with like a quarter of the weight of that. And they're struggling and like, okay, now let me have you 
hold five fans. And that's what it was like to do, to yeah. do that. Like the, the arm strength, the upper back strength. And then the fact that we're running up and downstairs, there's no way any of us ever would have had to go to the gym. And it's a no. hard reality when you stop doing those shows and like, yeah. Oh, I actually have to work out now. So I, um, I, I have done a fan number for Miss Bluebell on tour before, and I was like, oh, these things are light. This is nothing. <laughs> but, you know, you mentioned something interesting, that we all had very sculpted bodies and we looked very good, even if we were a little heavier. And I was a little bit heavier when I started that show. I'd been working in Spain and in Egypt where they like their girls to look like women, you know, and, and I wasn't heavy. I'm well-proportioned, but I was a little bit heavy. So when they were fitting us for costumes, when they were designing the costumes and fitting them, they would just grab somebody randomly to put on a costume costume and then you would go down and talk to Miss Bluebell and Don Arden with the with the designer and I think Bill Campbell designed the flight attendant costumes the stewardess costumes and originally they had that big blue collar that stood up in the back and the white cape but the white cape he designed to come all the way around and buckle underneath your chin so your whole body was completely covered by the white cape you couldn't see the jeweled bra you couldn't see the jeweled g-string um, and so I, they, they walked me, Bill Campbell and I walked down to the table and we looked at, uh, stood, I stood by Miss Bluebell and, and we looked, Don Arden looked at the costumes and he said, no, 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 you need to undo this and, and put the cape to the back. We want it to flutter in the wings, uh, flutter in the wind when the plane comes forward on the wings. And they talked about that and he redesigned the costume and made a, it made a beautiful costume. But that cape, we looked, I looked like a nun or like a nurse. <laughs> And that cape fell right at the whitest part of my thighs. And very quietly and very discreetly, Miss Bluebell just flicked my thighs a little bit right there. And she said, you want to watch that, dear. <gasps> and that's, that's all she had. Don Arden didn't hear her. That oh, was really? all she had to say. So there was a lunch wagon that would come in and into, into the basement because we rehearsed from six to two, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. around 10 o'clock, we'd have a lunch break. But I always brought a sandwich and most of my friends brought a sandwich. Well, those English girls, do you know what a sandwich is in England? It's a skinny piece of bread with a thin piece of meat and another skinny piece of bread. Right. I brought a sandwich. <laughs> American I had whole sandwich. grain bread. I had lettuce and tomato. I had maybe some avocado or some sprouts. I had meat and cheese. <laughs> and my, my friends would say, oh, that looks so good. Can I have a bite? So I felt it very easy to lose a little weight because my friends always ate half my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good friends. You said something before the interview that I think you were still in, in Spain that you had, you traced the outside of your foot and did all oh, your, I thought yes. that was really fascinating because the costumes were made for they were made you guys for us. specifically. Yeah. You weren't so just wearing when, old shoes. Right. Oh, it was the most unique experience. Brand new hotel, brand new showroom, brand new dressing rooms, brand new choreography, brand new costumes, brand new music, everything brand new, everything. That rarely happens in show business. So with my contract that I signed and sent back to Miss Bluebell, I had to, there was some brown paper and I had to stand in that and bare feet on that and draw around my foot for my foot measure. And then I had to measure the arch of my foot and my ankle and the widest part of my calf and the distance from my under my knee to the floor and then my underarm measurement my hips my waist my bust i think my neck i can't remember and then of course we had to measure around the top of our head for hats 
Yeah. So that gave them some ideas of those were all filed away somewhere. So once we were divided into groups and split up into numbers, um, then if you were in top hat, they would try and find a top hat that fit your head measurement that was supposed to fit your head measurement. Or for a gown like, um, like the fans gown or the beautiful gowns that the bluebells wore in Knob Hill, they would have the bust measurement and the hip measurement so they could make those gowns fit nicely. But there was a lot of sewing that went on. In, in wardrobe and a lot of altering that went on as we got closer and closer to the opening to make sure that everybody's costume fit perfectly. That's incredible. Cause I, if you've listened to Pete Menefee's episode when he talks about like mm-hmm. just tiller, like how there's milliner doing this, there's people that just do the jewels, there's people that mm-hmm. just did, and that the boots, because you have to kick and you can't have that squeezing your calf. I feel like every right. show I did after was such a sad thing because I mean, I came in, so I had to replace and fit in whoever had the costume before me. And I know there was probably some alterations, but normally like either buy your own shoes or you're wearing somebody's boots that have been worn. And if you don't have the same rotation in your feet, you just have to make it work. Like to be a part of something that was actually built for you and you for it is like, that's not that many people get to experience that. I feel like I got used to that and then got like, I went ahead to sew my own fishnets and repair them. Like, oh, oh, I had to do all that. When I, when I went into the show in Barcelona, when I took Carol Spinks's spot in the, the uh, El Teatro Victoria, uh, Loco Loco Paralelo was the name of our show. I, they didn't have a, a pair of can-can boots to fit me. And we did a very, very, very raucous can-can. Um, when we weren't on stage dancing, there was a line of girls and boys, one girl, one boy, one girl, one boy. And we ran across the front of the stage and then all the way around behind the back scrim and around to the other side and across again. So it looked like we had a hundred dancers running across <laughs> the stage and I had these boots and they were too small and it was August. And in August in Europe, everything is closed. And I said, I need bigger boots. These boots are too small. And they said, sorry, everything closed. Serato, serato, no open. And I said, so a few days later, I said, I need, I need bigger boots. No, no, can, no can do. <coughs> and of course, I was new in this show, and I wasn't wanting to make a fuss, and I didn't speak Spanish. And then after about two weeks, thinking about my mangled toes, I could hardly do anything else because my feet were so squished up. After the, fa- the finale, I wore those boots in the finale. Also, after the finale, I walked into the choreographer's dressing room and I had my boots in my hand and I dropped them on the floor and I said, I'm done. I'm not doing the can-can until I get a new pair of boots. And guess what? I had you got a new the next week. <laughs> oh my, and I think for dancers, we're just told like, just make do or, or that you don't matter as much as other things. And so to actually like, oh, that's not good for your dancers to have, they're, they're going to end up injured. Because I remember doing Tiller and the bottom of the heel broke off. Ah! So in the, all those kicks, so I couldn't put my heel down. So you had to only be on the ball of your foot. So without the protection of those heels, it was excruciating. And then how do you get off stage? Well, the heel, I think the heel was barely hanging on. So I couldn't put it down, but it's one of those, if there's a costume piece that goes wrong, but like a can-can or a yeah. kick line, it's like you, gosh, the fact that you have to have really good footwear, which I feel like it's so overlooked for dancers. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember I went to the chiropractor years ago with just some neck issues and have you been in the car accident? Have you done this? I'm like, no. And then I told him about the shows and the head pieces. He's like, there you go. That would mm-hmm. probably do some damage to your spine. I went, yeah. I know we, 
I know we lost Tim Mackey recently. Yeah. And I, I wanted to tell you a Tim Mackey story and um, also a beloved Pete Menifee story. So the first one is I was living in Florida at the time and Pete Menifee choreographed a Disney on Ice show at Tico Arena. And I read that in the paper. And so I called backstage and I didn't know if he'd be there because it was like the day before the opening. I called backstage and asked if I could speak to him. And they said, no, he's not here, but we'll let you speak with one of his assistants. And I spoke to a nice, nice girl. And I said, oh, well, I just wanted to come out and say hello to Pete or at least speak to him because I did this show and he did our costumes and he's such a lovely man. She goes, oh, he is such a lovely man. Mm. And she said, well, I, just give me your name and your phone number and I'll, I'll tell him that you called. So I said, okay. And one day after that, a couple of weeks after that, I was ironing and my phone rang and I said, hello. And he goes, hi, it's Pete Menifee. Is this Lindy? And he called me and thanked me for trying to get in touch with him. Thank you, oh, Pete. And hey. I remember, I remember at the time he said he had all these renderings and drawings from the show. And I, I so wanted to ask him if I could have one, but I didn't have the nerve. And now I know those things are being preserved and I'm so excited because they are such fabulous yeah. works of art. So that's my Pete Menifee story. And then my Tim Mackey story. So still living in Florida. And by this time, my son is a freshman in high school. And um, I went to the 25th reunion and I saw Tim and we visited because of course, we were all in rehearsals together. We were all really close. What are you doing now? And he said, well, I'm a dresser for Chippendales. So of course, like many dancers, dancers make great dressers because they know. Yeah. And who comes to Fort Myers to work in a club but the Chippendales? So I thought, I'll, I'll call Timmy. I'll see if Timmy's on this national tour. And maybe I can take my son and we can go see the Chippendales and I can go backstage afterwards. This would be really great. So I called, but Tim was not on that tour. And afterwards, I thought, can you imagine my son going to high school on Monday? What'd you do this weekend? Oh, my mom took me to the Chippendales. <laughs> education. Miss Gay Rose reputation ruined right there. She took her son to the Chippendales. So that those are my Bill. Those are my Tim Mackey and Pete Menifee stories. One of the things uh, as we're kind of coming close to the end here that that stuck out is all the pictures that it's Miriam and you and Kate that you're in these photos and it seems like you guys get together because you all live all, all, all the over the place. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like that's really beautiful and unique because you did live a very unique life, but you did it longer than like me coming in for a year and out. Like the right. friendships that are lifelong. Can you talk about like how you sure. bonded and what kept so, that together all these years? Did sure. you work so Kate, together Kate, after? Kate, no. Well, yes. Yes. So Kate Bennett is Kate Mayo Bennett. And she worked at the Lido. Then she worked at the Scala with Andrea. And then they worked in Reno together and they were both in group A. Miriam worked at the Moulin Rouge and then she and I both worked in group D together. So then as soon as she could escape group D, Miriam moved into group A. So then she was with Kate and Andrea, but we, but Andrea became my roommate and, and the four of us were just really close friends. So Kate lives in Newbury and very sadly, um, Miriam's mother has passed away, but Miriam used to go to England every six months to see her mother and she would often stop and stay with Kate. And Andrea, before COVID, would travel to Europe and the United States every year or every other year. And she always would come to see me or I would go somewhere to meet her and we would be together. And then she would go and stay with Kate. So we just had this spider web friendship relationship. And Miriam has extra bedrooms. And when we go to Reno, we all stay at her house. So it's like a giant 
slumber party. But when I, when I was working, after I left Hello Hollywood, I did a television show in Milan for Miss Bluebell. And then I did um, four months in Marrakesh as company manager for a show in Marrakesh. And then I went on tour with a group. Teo was our company manager, Teo from the Lido, the ice skater. And we worked in um, Italy and then Finland and Sweden and then back to Finland and Sweden. This is in the winter, Finland and Sweden in the winter. Oh. And, then, and then back to Italy. So when we were in Genoa in the summer, Andrea was in Monte Carlo and she took the train and or had a car and came to see me. And then I took the train and went down to see her. So the impresario who was booking this tour I was on, um, after we left Italy, booked them into Cairo for the summer. Okay, are you getting the drift here? <laughs> Finland and Sweden in the winter where I bought my fur coat and Cairo in the summer. They ended up not going there, but I said, I'm getting off here. <laughs> Goodbye. I, I'm done with this. And uh, there, was a, there was a girl in the show at the Folly Roost at the Lowe's Hotel in Monaco who was leaving um, for a month to go on vacation. Her mother was coming to meet her and they were going to Greece for a month. And Andrea said, call, call Miss Doris. Ask her if you could do Nancy Andrews' spot and be our holiday swing. So I called Miss Doris in Paris. And I said, Miss Doris, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I auditioned for you for a job in Japan uh, in Reno and you sent me a contract, but I, I decided not to take it because I had the opportunity to become captain in Reno, so I stayed in that show. And since then, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've worked for Miss Bluebell, and this is how tall I am. And I know Nancy Andrews is going on vacation, and my tour is over with Miss Bluebell, and I was wondering if I could um, come and do her spot as a holiday girl. And she said, um, okay, I don't remember you, but I offered you a contract. Yes. And you worked for Miss Bluebell? Yes. And you were a swing? Yes. And you were a captain? Yes. Okay, you're in. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, back then we didn't have these means of communication we do now. You couldn't send a video of yourself as an audition piece. Right. But it was a small world. And once you were in that world, you always knew somebody who knew somebody. And so I went to Monaco and worked with Andrea and we worked together there. And then she left and went to Germany to do modeling. And I stayed in that show for two years. And then I stopped dancing. That was my last job. And that's where I met my husband, who's French. And I lived on the Côte d'Azur for 12 years before uh, we moved back to Pueblo. So you said kicking and screaming to Pueblo. Yeah. Now that makes sense if he just, he came yeah. from living there. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Liz Larkin told a story. It was so funny about how she grew up in Carson City. But a lot of the Brits would just talk about how awful Reno was and you couldn't get the right biscuits <laughs> if you grew up there. But it's like or the you, right sandwiches. No, the right they had sandwiches. The right, we had the right sandwiches. We had the wrong right. biscuits. No, I think that yours sounds more fun. But yeah, it is interesting of, um, yeah, to go to living that life. Because I feel like my friendships, I just, we didn't have the internet. So I lost contact That's with all these people. I found Marilyn uh Stedman I Stedman mm -hmm. we stayed in contact Carl and Vandegrift and I were good friends and I think it took us like 15 years to find and then we lost each other again because of married names and we reconnected shortly before she passed and I, it was like this amazing connection but I kind of left I didn't have that connection you guys had because we didn't stay we in were contact very, 
we were very tight. It's very beautiful and unique. So I feel like you go back into whatever is considered real life. And so, then when I couldn't share yeah. that part of my life, I didn't have those memories to share with people. Mm -hmm. It kind of just felt like almost like a chapter that closed. But the fact that you guys could get together and share what's new in your life, but also you've got all these memories that are unique to the Bluebell experience that other people yes. would think you're a little crazy that you rode up on an elephant head on an elevator with something about wagons and like, yeah, oh, that, that world is just not quite um, understandable. So some, for of those, so some of those girls who didn't like Reno, they married and they stayed there. And, I know, and that's funny. <laughs> and, and that's, that's who uh, the Bunyans are. There are six of them and they're all English and we all rehearse together and they get together every other month and they have gone through weddings and divorces and marriages and separations and babies and school yeah. and fires. Miriam's, Miriam's house caught on fire. That was when we were still, or her house burned down. That was when we were still in the show, that, a fire on oh. Mount Rose. It was horrible. It was horrible. Oh. And we, you know, we didn't have cell phones. Right. Who, where's Miriam? Where's my Miriam? It's the mountains on fire. Where's my Miriam? You know? So they've wow. been through so much together. And if you're a bunion, you're a bunion. And if you're not, you're not, you don't <laughs> get to be a bunion unless you're a bunion, except I got to be a bunion for one night. Oh, I did, did you? Yes. I, I assumed did. you were because of like connections. No. And I like the use, and I assumed you were English because of that. And like, oh no, 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 I'm just as I'm just as hometown Colorado as they come. I'm just a little hometown Colorado girl. So uh, for our last reunion, unfortunately, um, this story has a happy ending. Unfortunately, Diana um, Hawcroft, um, her husband had to have some surgery, and she was unable to attend the actual reunion. So Miriam took me with her and I uh, went to the suite with the girls and changed and got ready and helped set up things in the um, room for the big dinner and helped people sign up. And I got to be a bunion for the night. So that was the, oh. a big, a big thrill. And, and it's funny because we talked about height. So Andrea's quite tall. Miriam's quite tall. Kate's quite tall. And I'm not quite as tall as they are. And we went on a trip in uh, Miriam's husband's RV out to Pyramid Lake for a barbecue after the reunion. And Miriam's lovely, lovely daughter, Eve, took a picture of the four of us together. It's, I cherish it. It's a beautiful picture. And they looked at it afterwards and they said, wow, you must have been standing on a little hill because you look as tall as we are. <laughs> Always the short uh, one. That's me. Maybe, maybe they've shrunk and you haven't. <laughs> Because it takes a lot of work to get together, especially when you're not living on the same continent. Like the fact that you guys we make it work it. says we work a lot. It. Uh -huh. It's a lot. Of, you have to want to do that. Yeah. And we had actually planned after the reunion, we said that Miriam, Andrea, Kate, and I said, you know, we, Andrea, Kate, and I should come back every two years because those are not our, Miriam's not our only friend there. Debbie Cladney is there. Diana Bickford, Diana Hawcroft Bickford is there. Tracy Akesian, um, all the all the Bunyans, Rita, Janine. Am I leaving anybody out? Um, they're all our friends, and we get together with all of them when we go. Um, Linda Nordvig is there. Jillian is in and out, and she is there. Just it's just a wonderful bunch of of people. But now we have COVID, so we we didn't get to go back there this year. So <sighs> we'll see when this whole thing is over. I imagine that we will start traveling again, and that that's something we we will do. I mean, mm. I will. I told Miriam, it's ridiculous that I'm sitting here in my house, not working because I'm on furlough, and I can't be in your living room 
drinking a glass of wine with you because I can't get an airplane out there. So yeah, I could oh now, God. I could now, but I'm back to work now. So what, what do you, you know. do right now? What is your job? I work in a furniture store. Really? I've, I, yeah. I've, I've had all kinds of jobs. I worked, um, when I left the show in Monaco after a while, I worked at Christian Dior in the boutique there. Um, uh, as, as a salesperson. And then I worked in Nice at Marks and Spencer's, Marks and Sparks. All the English girls know what that is. They opened a store in, in Nice. And I taught English lessons and I worked in a foreign currency exchange office. Then I worked, um, when I moved back to Pueblo, I worked in a cemetery at a cemetery for five years. It was a wonderful job. I loved it. And uh, then I worked at Dillard's in the makeup department. And then uh, my, my friend who she and her brother own a furniture store uh, called and asked if I would think of working for them. And I, she saved me from Dillard's. I left and oh I went gosh. to the furniture store. I've been there for five years. It's a small family owned business and it's a great place to work. I really like it. Nice, nice but, people. Shout out to Ben Fatty Furniture in Pueblo, Colorado. Okay, we'll give them, yeah. give them some business. And I think yeah. it's interesting how dancers, because like you just pack up and go to another country, you pack up and, and meet new people, find a house all over again, or like people that kind of did, and you know, some people did college and then stayed in their town and there's nothing against that, but it just feels like the way that dancers' life has already been set up. If you do those shows, it's like, where am I going next? So if you're going to change careers mm -hmm. four or five times, is, is dancers, I think, just do it maybe easier that they can switch it up. I think so. Up. I think they're flexible. Mm -hmm. yeah, and you but it's interesting. It's interesting that the woman I'm working for, Marie Benfatti, that was a dance relationship too. We had just moved back to Pueblo and the welcome wagon lady came to our home and uh, gave my mother coupons and things. And my mother said, uh, well, my daughter takes dancing lessons. Where should she go? She takes ballet lessons. And the welcome wagon lady said, call Louise Benfatti. Her daughter's dance. So my mother calls Mrs. Benfatti. And she goes, oh, I'm taking Margie and Marie up to Colorado College in Colorado Springs for lessons on Saturday. We'll swing by and pick up your daughter. That's how I met them. Oh so my Marie, gosh. Marie is two years older than I am. So she was a revered senior when I was a sophomore in high school. Homecoming queen, beautiful girl, you know. Not somebody I would have normally been friends with if it hadn't been for the dance connection and then her younger sister Margie Margie is two years younger than I am so when I was a senior Margie was a sophomore back in those days in Pueblo high school was just sophomore junior senior it had to do with the baby boom population so we um, yeah. we had seventh eighth and ninth and then high school was sophomore junior and senior so even that is a dance relationship a dance friendship and I would come back from wherever I'd been traveling and Marie and I would go to lunch and we would visit and she was a beautiful dancer a lovely lovely dancer a lovely person and she still is a lovely person mm. that must have been yeah. fun for her to hear your stories of how I don't that know. dance took you yeah. further and things I don't know that if people like, think these stories are any good or not but it was sure, <laughs> sure fun for me to live them it was really yeah. fun for me to live them yeah so yeah. we're gonna wrap up here and i love okay. that a lot of the interviews i've gotten to hear more about bluebell personality and character and heart because I only knew her from the audition. I think I've shared my story of crying in her arms in her hotel when I was going to turn the job down because my parents were disowning me for being topless. But I feel like I saw that part. And then I only knew because the show was going, how she would kind of come once in a while to see the show. But I am loving every single story of people that actually worked with her. Because I know Sherry, that's Sherry, have you read her book? I have. The book of her. Oh, yeah. It's so, it's so fabulous. And, and she was so good to her girls. She was so good to her girls. Um, 
she was really kind to her girls and she loved it when her girls kept in touch with her. Every time I went through Paris to rehearse, which was rehearsing for her. So I usually saw her anyway, but I would always stop in. My niece came to visit my, my lovely niece and I took her to Paris um, for, uh, this was when I was living in, in Monaco and I, I took her to Paris for a little uh, vacation and I called Miss Bluebell and I said, can I come and see you and, and introduce you to my niece? And it was, it was really funny because she was having a remodel in her apartment and there were carpenters in her office. And she said, let's come to the bedroom, dear. And so we went into the bedroom and sat on, sat on her bed and, and she sat on a chair and we had a lovely visit and we, we, we kept in touch and she was lovely. She was really I lovely. Christopher Nunez, who was on here a few episodes before, he's doing a musical on Bluebell on her life. Mm -hmm. And he does all this research. He knows so much about her. And there's things like just what an amazing businesswoman she was. And also oh, yeah. hearing like how many dancers that she hired, like uh, for all of us, I think it changed our life being a Bluebell dancer, what that gives you for other opportunities. But it feels like for how successful and just hearing even some of her hardships of growing up and about the war, the fact that she was so warm and because I just feel like there's people that have a lot of people under them that they don't have the time or the desire to get to know. But everything I've heard about her, she wants, she wants to connect and it's not an imposition to reach out to her or actually like have mm -hmm. you come in her, in her room. It's like, there's something that doesn't quite seem like how her persona came across is very, I kind of thought it was aloof until I got to know her a little bit more about the stories you guys tell. That aloof was, was not. She was aloof and she didn't make conversation easily, but mm -hmm. she did love her girls and she did love having conversations with her girls. At least that's, that's the way she came across to me. And I think most, most of her dancers would tell you that also. Yeah. So as we're, as we're wrapping up, is there anything when you look back of, of your time there, if it's Hello Hollywood or all the other shows, it doesn't have to be Bluebell related, that just stands out of what maybe made you more of who you are now, even if that life was not like the big percentage of your life, it's enough to really make a significant difference? Yes. I think my career I'm a pleaser by nature. I'm, um, Andrea calls me mother earth. I take in all these strays. I had so many girls who came over to be in the show and stayed with me because until they found a flat, you know, a place to stay. But I think my career gave me resilience and gave me confidence. Uh, when I went to Spain and I was hired, my friend Sally was back in England and didn't come into the show until after I did. And I rehearsed and then I was on my own. I watched the show at night. I knew no one. I didn't speak the language. I had to find ways to entertain myself and take care of myself. I had to find a place to live. And it was similar uh, with most things that I did. Um, dancers back in the time when we were for Don Arden were not treated very nicely. Um, you had to stand up for what you believed in and what you wanted. And you had to know what you wanted and you had to pursue it. I'll never forget when I auditioned for Disneyland, which was my first professional job. Um, except when I was 10 and we danced for the Knights of Columbus and they gave us 50 cents each. Um, I remember them telling us, we have rules here and you need to follow these rules because if you don't, there are 10 people at the door who want your spot. And I always remembered that. And I always thought, you know, there are better dancers than I am. There are more experienced people than me out there. So I have to work hard. I have to work really hard. And I have to do the job that I'm given to do. I have to be prompt. I have to be on time. I have to take care of my costumes. And that is about the best life skill you can have to learn how to be a solid worker. So mm. that's, what I that's what I take from uh, my career. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for, for doing this interview. It was really fun because I feel like there's, I wish I could go back and like go back in the dressing room and talk to the people that I never really got to know and got to. Um, well, it's such a big show. You couldn't get to know everybody. But I remember, you know, talking about connecting on Facebook. I remember when Liz Thompson said, I found Sherry Lewis. And I thought, oh, I know Sherry Lewis. I know <laughs> Sherry. I worked with Sherry. Lewis. Yeah, that's right. So it's been great. And thank you for interviewing me. This has really yeah. been fun, Sherry. It's really thank been you fun. Thank so and I, much. I'm so thankful to you for get, capturing all these stories, for capturing everyone's stories. They're all so interesting. Mine, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but everybody else's is. And, yeah. so and everybody's got a different angle. And I feel like sure. every time we listen to one, it brings a little bit more of that memory that was probably too deep down, like just the cafeteria. Like I can smell that greasy smell and I can like remember what that was like. So I yeah. think everybody's story, it just helps us remember more. And I think the fact that these shows, except for in Paris, are, are mostly gone, it feels important to preserve the fact that there's going to be a musical, mm -hmm. that we've got the, Grant Filippo has his museum in Las Vegas, that Karen Burns, like the, the fact that we're understanding that this is something to preserve and honor as opposed to let it just kind of fall away. I think mm -hmm. there's a time in our society now that it feels like, and we're all getting older, like let's keep these stories alive and also finding each other just feels like a piece of mm -hmm. me gets to, to um, stay young to remember what that was like to live that life, which, and then when you're in it, you don't realize how magnificent until you have to go and like, you know, <laughs> once, once in a while, I'll run into someone who's English, who's of a certain age and that we'll be chatting and they'll be talking about, you know, did you ever been to England? Yes. I went about, I went to school there. What kind of ballets? And then I'll say, well, do you, do you know who the bluebell girls are? They're, oh yes. Well, I was a bluebell girl. <gasps> you never, <gasps> They're really? so impressed. Yes, they're so impressed. Oh, they're so impressed. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping to bring a little of that honor here, like with my dancers who didn't know. Like, I feel like it's America does not get that. But I think to understand the legacy is honored and beautiful. And it was well, an amazing privilege that we probably mm -hmm. didn't understand when we were in it and to go. Okay, and bless you for what you're doing for your girls. It's great. Every teacher is great. Every dance teacher is great. Yeah. And there's so many things that we can offer from our own experience, not just, you know, just knowledge. Right. So thank yeah. you. This was wonderful. And we're going to get those bunions. We're going to peer pressure them. Okay. To do I'm going to put, I'm gonna put my it. pressure on okay. all of them. <laughs> Everyone wants to hear the bunion story. And I would love okay, to find sure. Diana Hawcroft. So yes, thank you. And also for making that an amazing experience when I was in it, however many years ago, because every dancer in our row and the, and the, and just made that experience just such a wonderful, memorable time. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Bye. Bye.